0: Um, we're turning to Genesis, it's the first book of the Bible, and chapter 22 begins on page 14 in the Black Bibles and on page 10 in the Gold Bibles. And so we've been working, we're in a series working through the book of Genesis, not trying to look at every passage, not every facet, but trying to get a sense of what does Genesis teach about, what, what does it mean to know God, who, who is he? And what does it mean to be in relationship with him? And and as we're walking through kind of the, the second half of Genesis, we're looking at God's dealings with one family, the family of Abraham. And we're looking at encounters the people in this family had with God and what they learned about him through those encounters. So last week we looked at a covenant in Genesis chapter 15 that God made with Abraham, a time Abraham was alone. And this morning we're looking at an encounter Abraham had with God when he was with his son Isaac. So let's read from Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray again. Our Father, we thank you that you have put this story in our Bibles, that there is something you want to say about yourself to us through this. There's something you want to get done this morning through your word. And so we want to be expectant of that. We want to lean in to whatever it is you want to say. So God, I pray that you would, that you would open our heart, you open our ears, that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to know what it is that you are saying and that you would help us to take it to our hearts, help us to live out of it, help us to experience the joy and the goodness of it. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, let's admit from the very beginning that this passage is hard to understand. It's bewildering, unsettling, even disturbing. If you're not a Bible reader, you look at this and you think, how could modern people worship a God who would ask this of someone? You're looking around, you're thinking, what is wrong with everybody else here? And if you're, if you're a Christian and a Bible reader... It disturbs you as well because it seems so out of character for the God who's revealed himself in Scripture and in Jesus. What is going on here? Well, more than, more than you see at first glance. So I just want to draw your attention to a few things just even before we start working through the passage just to kind of ease the tension a little bit from the beginning. The first thing to keep in mind is that this book was written by Moses for the people of Israel, the people who had come out of Egypt, wandered in the wilderness, Moses wrote this in the wilderness, preparing them to go into the land. So this was written for people who already had God's law, which means they already knew that God abhors human sacrifice. Right? As, as just one example, Deuteronomy chapter 18, "...there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations... The Lord your God is driving them out before you. So there were people that lived in the land, and they did sacrifice their children to their gods, and God says, that's not going to happen among you. That's not how we do it. That's, that's why I'm driving them out. So no one who read this, none of the original readers of Moses, none of Moses' audience would have read this and thought, okay, yeah, child sacrifice, yeah, that's what we do. No, they would have read it, and they would have had the same reaction you had. They would have said, wait, what? And the second thing to keep in mind is that Moses tips us off from the very beginning that Isaac is going to be fine. Look at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. Moses wants us to know from the very beginning that this is a test. There's something that, that God is trying to accomplish in Abraham's life. We don't know what that is But it lets us know from the beginning that this is is a controlled situation. God has this under control. But the tension of this passage is not, is Isaac going to be okay? The tension of this passage is, is Abraham going to pass the test? Is he going to come through? And the third thing to keep in mind is that this test is utterly unique to Abraham because of what Isaac meant to Abraham and what Isaac means in the Bible. So remember that God had called Abraham to be the father of his people. That he, he said, I'm going to give you a son, and that son will become a great nation, and through that nation, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to bless all nations. And he called into that when Abraham had no children. Abraham had to wait 25 years for this miracle baby to be born. So to Abraham, Isaac was, he was the embodiment of all his hopes for the future. Everything that was going to happen through Abraham's family had to happen through Isaac. He was the only son of Abraham and Sarah. So, so to Abraham, Isaac was everything. And so when God says to Abraham, take your son, offer him as a burnt offering, what he's saying is, Abraham, will you worship me even if worshiping me costs you everything? Am I first in your heart? Have you, have you obeyed me and, and trusted me all these years just to get a son? Or have you done it because you love me for my own sake? And he's saying as well, you know that I promised you that I'm going to make a great nation through Isaac. That hasn't happened yet. So are you going to trust my promise even when my command seems to fly right in the face of it? Will you trust me even when you don't understand? Do you love me and will you trust me? That's the test. That's the tension. That's the drama of this passage. Now let's look, let's look at the passage, let's kind of work our way through it under three headings. And you, you have an outline in the back of your bulletin. The first heading is that God tests his people with a call to sacrificial obedience. That's what this shows us. Look again at the call in verse 2. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So this is Abraham's final exam. Right, God had called Abraham out of, out of a pagan people, out of idolatry. He'd called him to belong to him. And over years, God had been working in Abraham's life, teaching him and putting trials in his way, shaping him into a person of deep and resilient faith, someone who's a fit father for all of God's people. And at the culmination of all his walking with God, God calls him to this kind of final test, this, this final exam, this... Will you love me and trust me even in this? And God knows what it will cost Abraham. He says to him, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. He knows how this is going to land on Abraham. He knows what it's going to cost him. But he calls him to sacrifice anyway. Abraham's test was literally sacrificial obedience. And that was unique to Abraham. God never calls anyone else to this ever. It was unique to Abraham, but the experience of testing is not. Look, for example, at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. This should come up behind me. Which Moses spoke to the people of Israel as they prepared to enter the promised land. He said, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. God tested them to know what was in their heart by giving them commands. He said, Let's let's see if you will obey what I command of you. That will show me what's in your heart. And this idea of testing is not just an Old Testament idea. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So our faith is tested in the times when it's difficult to be faithful to God, when it costs us something when there's a sacrifice involved. When obedience is sacrificial, it reveals what's in our hearts, whether we love God most and trust him entirely. Now, there are lots of reasons why a person might live a superficially Christian life, why someone might come to church, maybe read the Bible and pray, maybe, maybe get into a small group but not actually have a heart that loves and trusts God. There are lots of reasons for that, right? They might do it because they were raised in church. Being in church feels familiar and comforting. They might do it because they're dating someone who expects that of them. They want to they wanna rise to the occasion. They might do it because they feel guilty about things in their past, and, and they think maybe, maybe by, by church going I can kind of tip the scales in my favor. Sometimes even we don't realize that what's motivating us isn't genuine love and trust in God, but, but that comes out when we're tested. Because what, what does it mean to test something? You reveal its properties by subjecting it to extreme conditions, right? Some of you know that my undergrad degree was in engineering. And in engineering, I had to take classes about the properties of materials, right? So I had a class all about the properties of metal and we would, we had a lab where we would take these samples of metal and we would superheat them or or freeze them we would use machines to stretch them or or smash them or twist them also we could learn what what's this made of what what are the properties of this metal right we we stressed it to see what it was made of and that's how god tests us too we're tested by stress the, the properties of our hearts will be revealed when obedience to God is costly. You're gonna, you'll be in a situation where you'll realize you made an embarrassing and costly mistake for a client. And nobody knows about it yet, but you're going to be tested to know whether are you going to say something, even though that's going to jeopardize your job, or are you just going to keep it quiet and maybe, maybe no one will ever find out. Maybe, maybe it'll get blamed on someone else, right? Or Or you'll be tempted to compromise your convictions about marriage because you'll meet someone who's great in every way except they don't love God. Or you'll be caught in a tension between, on the one hand, a desire to be liked and admired by your friends and your coworkers who aren't Christians, and on the other hand, teachings of the Bible which, if you admit that you believe that, are going to make you seem intolerant and foolish in the eyes of the people around you. Those moments will reveal what you really trust and what you really treasure because in those moments, faithfulness is going to cost you something. God's great dream for your life is not comfort. He doesn't work all things together for your ease. God wants to make you a person of unshakable faith, an unwavering love, a person who endures suffering with joy and does hard things and impacts people's lives for eternity and he brings tests into your life as kind of periodic assessments of where your heart is, really. And I realize that this is not a great advertisement for Christianity, right? Come worship a God who's going to make your life hard. It's not a great advertisement, but I'm not here to sell you something. If you're looking for a belief system that kind of fits nicely into the lifestyle you already have, the choices you're already making, the plans you're already pursuing, something that just we'll just add kind of a dash of peace and transcendence into your almost perfect but not quite there life christianity is probably not what you're looking for but if you're looking for the truth then you've come to the right place or rather the right god the god of genesis 22 is not a god we would invent we wouldn't make up a god who makes us this uncomfortable who asks this of a person this is in the bible because it's real the true and living God intrudes in our lives. He upsets the apple cart. He doesn't make things easy. This reminded me of that, that classic place in C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles where the children are coming to Narnia. It's winter. They're in the beaver dam gathered around the table, and the beavers are telling them about the king who's coming, and all of a sudden the children start to get a little unsettled because ju- it's just dawned on them that the king the beavers are talking about is a lion. And Susan and Lucy asked them, is he quite safe? And this is what Mr. Beaver says. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The true and living God is so committed to making something glorious and durable out of your life that he will make you uncomfortable. Uncomfortable and ask things of you that don't seem reasonable, that seem like more than you can bear. He will test you to show what's in your heart. He will call you to sacrificial obedience. Abraham thought that his faith would cost him everything, and he obeyed. How did he do it? Secondly, obedience is fueled by fear and faith. And one of the aspects of the story that's most striking when you read it is the detail. I mean, it's just, it's just painstaking. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the stories are just kind of bullet points of what happened. But in this, it's almost cinematic. You can see everything that's happening, right? Abraham rises early. He saddles the donkey. He calls these young men. Maybe he has to wake Isaac up, right? He goes and he, he chops the wood for the burnt offering. He settles it on the donkey. He straps it down. They set off. It takes them three agonizing days, to get to where he's going. He sees the mountain. He leaves his servants behind. He ascends the slope alone. Isaac carrying this wood on his back. Abraham with the fire and the knife. He gets to the the summit of the hill. He, He has to gather stones. And then stone by stone builds an altar. Arranges the wood on the altar. Binds Isaac on top of it. It's just, it's agonizing. It's awful to watch. I mean, can you just, can you imagine the anguish? Why does Moses dwell on this scene? It's because it gives us the opportunity to imagine all the moments at which Abraham could have turned back. Any point in those three days, he could have just steered the donkey back and said, I don't think so. He has to keep choosing obedience all the way to the end, and he does. And what does God declare over him? Look at what the angel says in verse 12. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God says, I can see in your obedience that you fear me. It was fear that fueled his obedience. Now, what does it mean to fear God? It's important to be clear about this, because there's a way to fear God that's wrong, and a way to fear God that we must. And you can see both in Exodus chapter 20. So this is just after God gave the Ten Commandments. This is what Moses writes, Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So he's saying, Don't be afraid, don't fear. Because God has come to test you that you may fear, right? There's a fear that we must not do and a fear that we must. And the wrong kind of fear is what these people are are, are showing. That they're afraid God's going to kill them. Don't let God talk to us. We're going to die if he does. And Moses says, no, no. God has rescued you from slavery. He brought you out to be his people. He loves you. You don't have to be afraid of that. But you do have to fear him. Take him seriously. See that he is a great And a holy God, and do not sin against him. Now can I can I go back one more time to the beaver dam and the children in Narnia? This is how that scene goes on. The beaver says, Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. That's right, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver, bringing his paw down on the table with a crash that made all the cups and saucers rattle. Peter says, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened. And the beaver says, that's it. There's a fear that isn't cringing. It's not worried that God's just going to change his mind about us and smite us. A, A fear that's not afraid of God's punishment, but at the same time doesn't treat him like a buddy, We're not afraid of being destroyed, but we stand in awe of his greatness. And we are afraid of dishonoring and displeasing such a good and holy and righteous God. There's a fear that's a form of love. We know he's great, but like Peter, we we long to be close to him. And when you fear God like that, you're going to obey him even when it's costly. If you don't obey God, you don't fear him. Abraham showed his fear by obedience. And there was something along with his fear, something, something distinct from it but inseparable. And we, so we saw, when we listened to what God said, now I know you fear me, that's where we knew that fear was underneath it. But when we listened to what Abraham said in this passage, we see something else. So look at verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now skip down to verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. (coughs) Now you could read that, and there's a way to read that that's kind of cynical. You could say, Well... Abraham, it was just kind of too awful. Abraham, he just couldn't be honest in that moment, so he told these kind of white lies to obscure what was happening. He said, we're going to go worship, and then we're going to come back. But he didn't really believe that. Or he, he was trying to protect Isaac's feelings, so he said, well, God's going to provide a lamb, but really he knew no lamb was coming. That's kind of a cynical way to read this, and that doesn't really jive with what God says here. Now I know you fear me. Abraham was fearing God. I don't think that this was Abraham lying. I think that these were declarations of faith. Remember, God had promised Abraham, I will make a great nation out of Isaac. You guys remember, if you were here last week, we saw that when God made that covenant, he had Abraham split these animals in half and make this pathway as a covenant ceremony, and God walked through the pieces when he made the promise, saying, in effect... If I don't keep my promise to you, may I be torn apart. That was the strength of God's commitment to give him a son, to make that son a nation, and to bless the nations through the nation. So Abraham knew that God was going to keep his promise. He knew that God was going to make a nation of Isaac, and he knew that God had called him to sacrifice him, and he didn't know how that fit together, but he believed that Isaac was coming back down the mountain. He believed that God would provide. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us this explicitly. This is what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham didn't know if God was going to stop him, or if God was going to raise Isaac from the dead, but he knew that Isaac was coming back down that mountain. He trusted him and he obeyed. He, he triumphed through fear and faith. He took God seriously and he trusted his promises and it enabled him to obey even when he didn't understand. So do fear and faith characterize you? Another way to ask the question is, do you obey when it's sacrificial, are you are you responding to God's call to sacrificial obedience? And I'm not asking <clears throat> I'm not asking about kind of the, the big unusual stuff. I'm not saying, are you responding to God's call to sell all you have and go be a missionary to unreached peoples, to quit your job and start a nonprofit? Although if he's calling you to that, you better do it. What I'm asking is, are you responding to his call to ordinary, everyday obedience? Just to lay down your comfort, to lay down your preferences. And live according to what the Bible teaches. Are you doing that? Are you letting God's priorities shape the way you use your time? Are you making... Is all your free time me time? Or are you making time to... <coughs> excuse me. Read the Bible and pray. Paul, would you bring me my water? Thank you. I, I'm doing this mostly for you because I know that this is making you more uncomfortable than it's making me. Are you using your time... According to God's priorities, to to read the Bible and pray, to teach your kids about God, to to meet your neighbors and love them. Are you letting God's priorities shape the way you use your money and the way you do your work? If not, then there's a deficiency of fear or faith. Either you're not taking God seriously or you're not trusting that his ways are good, that he knows best. That if you will obey him in faith, he'll provide completely. And that's what Abraham experienced. So let's look finally. Thirdly, God meets obedient faith with provision and assurance. So what does Abraham encounter on the far side of obedience? Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham couldn't understand how it was that God would both keep his promise to to bless Isaac, to make him a nation, to bless the nations through him, and how he could do this command that God had called him to. He couldn't see how it all fit together. But on the far side of obedience, God provided a way, and what he provided was a substitute. Abraham saw the ram, and he knew immediately what it was. It was God saying, take this instead of your son. Let your son live and sacrifice this in his place. Abraham was able to offer a sacrifice, God kept his promise, and Isaac lived. And Abraham was so moved by this experience that he says, he, he renames the mountain. He says, this mountain will be called, the Lord will provide. And it became a saying, on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Now, I wonder if we believe that this could be true in our life. Do we believe that God provides in the place of obedience? That God provides not before we go out to do what he's called us to do, but in the going out to do it. We prefer to have the provision first. We say, God, <clears throat> you want me to talk to my coworker about Jesus? Well, that's fine. Make me fearless, and then I'll do it. Or we say, God, you want me to be generous? Well, that's fine. Give me more than I need, and then I'll be glad to give some of it away. Or, God, you want me to jeopardize my job by reporting unethical practices at work. Fine, show me there's another job just waiting for me to slot into, and then I'll do it. We're, we want the provision first. But God says, on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Obey first. Trust me first. And then you'll see my provision. And not just provision, but assurance. So we're not going to go all the way through verses 15 to the end, but but there and the angel speaks Another time, the same promises that God has been saying to Abraham ever since the beginning. The same promises about making Isaac into a nation, blessing the nations through him, making his name great. The same ones he's been saying for the last 25 years, but he gives it an even greater depth. He says, by myself, verse 16, I have sworn, declares the Lord. He, never, he hasn't sworn by himself before. Verse 17, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring On the far side of obedience, Abraham experienced a new depth of assurance of God's care for him and the security of his promise. And you say, All right, you've made your point. We should obey God. We know. We know we should obey, but we haven't. And we don't. And if all you have for us is a reminder of how far short we fall, then frankly, I wish I'd stayed in bed. Is that all you have? No, because this passage isn't just a call to obey by faith, though it is that. It also contains the power to make us people who do obey by faith. Where? Now, this is the the moment of dramatic tension. I'm going to take a drink of water and make you think about that. There's an interesting description here. This in verse 14. Look back at verse 14. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, other places in scripture, the mount of the Lord only ever describes one of two mountains. Right? There's Mount Sinai, where God gave the Ten Commandments to the people, the the place of law. And there's Mount Zion, Jerusalem, where the temple is, the place of sacrifice. But this mountain isn't either of those two mountains, right? Or is it? Where are we? Look at verse 2 again. <clears throat> Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Do you know that Moriah only appears one other place in scripture? In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So where was it that Abraham experienced God's provision of a substitute? In the same place where there would later be the city of Jerusalem and a temple, and a hill called Calvary. This ram is not the last sacrifice to take place on this mountain, nor is Isaac the last son to climb the hill, carrying on on his back the wood on which he would be killed. What God refused to ask of Abraham, the life of his only son, what God refused to ask of anyone else, he himself gave. Where God said to Abraham, Now I know that you fear me, Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me, now we can say to him, now I know that you love me, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son, whom you love. This is not a passage that says, if you obey God perfectly like Abraham, God will bless you, because you can't obey perfectly, and neither did Abraham. This is a passage that says, if you put your faith in God, he will provide a substitute. On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Do you see that you have failed to obey God? You have said what you shouldn't have said and not said what you should. You've done what you shouldn't have done and left undone what you should. God's justice demands your life for your sin, but on the mount of the Lord, it was provided. He provided a substitute. His son took the judgment you deserve, and like Isaac, you go free. And if you see that, and if you trust that, do you know what will happen? You'll begin to fear God the right way. Not fearing his anger, because Jesus absorbed all of that on the cross, but loving him and fearing to displease or dishonor someone who would give his son for you. And as you grow in fear and faith, you'll obey him from the heart. You'll trust that his ways are good and good for you, and you'll experience new assurances of his love. And you'll grow to expect his provision. In fact, Paul likely had this passage in mind when he wrote to the Romans, my favorite promise in the Bible. He who did not spare his own son. He didn't spare his son, his only son whom he loved, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is calling us to sacrificial obedience. Not to gain his love, but because we already have it in Christ. So will you follow a good God where he leads? Let's pray. Our Father, we marvel at the picture in this passage of your love for us. That what you stopped Abram from doing, you gladly did yourself. You gave your son for us. And Lord Jesus, we marvel as we think about you willingly climbing the hill, carrying the cross, full of love for us, full of desire to please your Father, offering yourself so that we could be yours forever. And we want to be a holy people. We want to be a people who loves and fears you. We want to respond to what you've done by giving ourselves entirely to you, saying to you, your will be done Take me where you will, lead me, and I will live the life you want for me. We want to be those people. And so please send your spirit to make us a willing people, an obedient people, a holy people for your praise and for your glory. In Jesus' name.